this is The Legal Disclaimer, where I tell you that the views, thoughts, and opinions shared on this podcast belong solely to our guests and hosts, and not necessarily Brady or Brady's affiliates. Please note, this podcast contains discussions of violence that some people may find disturbing. It's okay. We find it disturbing, too. everybody to another episode of Red, Blue, and Brady. And yes, surprise, we are still working from home. In fact, Brady marked a full year of pandemic work from home on March 13th. Yeah, I don't even know what to say about that other than it's just very surreal (laughs) to think that it's been a year. Yeah, it's a full 365 days. I don't know about you, but I definitely reached the point in the pandemic where after a year, uh, I broke and cut off all of my hair and dyed it. You know, I highly recommend it. Do something, get a face tattoo, do whatever suits you. It's been a year. Yeah, I actually, I really look forward to seeing everyone's transformation when we meet again. Because, I mean, even when you see people on Zoom, it's very different than seeing them in person. So I'm sure that'll be a very, there'll be lots of emotions on that day. <laughs> yeah, I haven't seen anyone's full bodies <laughs> for a year. People could have tails now, Kelly. I wouldn't yeah, know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this is a bad time to tell you I have a tail. Just kidding. <laughs> for those listening out there. Well, and, and speaking of emotional responses, uh, like I would have when I interact with all of my new tail friends. That's exactly what we're talking about today. The emotional feelings that sort of get wrapped up for for better or for worse with with guns and gun ownership. And and so to do so, we're joined by Chris Brown, Brady's excellent president. She's been on the podcast before. And Sue Hildebrand, a political theorist and documentarian. Yeah. And this is a great chance to kind of step back and consider the context that we live in every day, but may not be aware of. Yeah, exactly. Especially I think if you, whether, you know, if you're a gun owner, if you're a non-gun owner, if you're for gun violence prevention, if you're not for gun violence prevention, like what if, if no matter who you are listening to this, I highly recommend you check out the documentary because it talks exactly about what we're discussing today, people's relationships to their firearms and how people perceive gun violence prevention as a movement. Yeah, I totally agree. It is definitely a documentary well worth your time, no matter where you fall. It's a really meaningful way to sort of expose some of the underlying norms that are shaping our relationships between ourselves and firearms, regardless of where we fall on the spectrum. So highly recommend. Very, very interesting. Sue, it's wonderful to be able to see you even virtually. This has got to be a little bit different for you. I know you have a radio show, so to not be running the interview has got to be strange. Uh, but I want to go ahead and just kick it off by having you and then Chris introduce yourselves. Sure. I'm Sue Hildebrand. I am a longtime community organizer and activist, and I happen to teach political science at the local university and the local community college. And I stumbled into making a documentary film. So I'm a filmmaker as well. And I'm Chris Brown. I'm the president of Brady, lawyer by training, mom by the birth of both of my daughters, and a gun violence prevention activist and advocate. We're going to start with what I think is a very stereotypical question, but also is a very important question, which is what prompted you to make a film about gun ownership? So I I do talk radio and I talk to a lot of people every single day and about guns, about, you know, community and society. And over the course of it seemed like out of nowhere, we started to hear about these mass shootings and it, and it seemed like it came from nowhere. And then the Sandy Hook shooting took place on a Friday. And I know that it came on a Friday because Saturday morning I was supposed to be live radio 
right after the shooting. And I had my guests all in place. And then Sandy Hook happened. And even as I think about it, I mean, it it kind of, uh, I can feel it in my chest and my eyes start to water. I mean, that was the epitome of the most awful moment for this entire country. And it was really that the next morning when I was on live radio and I cried and it was it was really that moment of I have to participate in some way I need to, and, and the and the arrogance that I had. And I think many folks have is for some reason I can figure this out. I'm going to explore and I'm going to say it in the right way and I'm going to figure out and get to the bottom of this 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 real issue of gun violence. And that's what got me going. And I set out to make this film with a real clear idea of what the film would say and that I could sort this out. And the only thing we lacked was a real understanding and political will. And through the process, I realized that this is very complicated and everything I thought was true really is it's true, but I don't think it's helpful of the way that I approached it. And so that's what kind of got me going was just the enough already kind of moment. I'm so interested in what you mean by everything you thought was true, um, was true, but not in the way you thought. But before we get there, I just want to dial in on the title of the film, which is American Totem. And it's such a great title and so evocative. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what makes a firearm a totem in American culture. Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. It's an important question. And to preface this by saying, I really struggled with the title and we, you know, we had working titles and they weren't very interesting. And so we played on words and, and finally, one of my producers said, you've got to come up with a title. You know, we're getting too far down this road. You've got to come up with it. And I turned off my phone and I, and I literally for about 48 hours, I live on this wonderful farm on the outskirts of, of Chico, California, and I kind of wandered around sort of open heartedly and thought, what is this film about? And out of nowhere, this, this came to me and I, I was, I was nervous. I was skeptical and I presented it to people and they all went, yeah, that's exactly right. So the definition of the text, the, the, the dictionary definition of a, of a totem is, it's an object serving as the emblem of a family or a clan, and it often serves as a reminder of ancestry. And as I kind of opened my heart, like, what is this film really about? That appeared. And as I really played with it, and I really thought about the hundreds of conversations I had with people all over the political spectrum, that was the right word. Because whether you are you know, a gun owner, if you're a hunter or you are an, a gun control advocate, it doesn't matter. So many people have this emotional reaction. And as I explored the history of it, the marketing of it, the Hollywood glorification of this object, it, it just fit that, that as Americans, I, I would run into people at the airport and just, you know, end up talking about, you know, yeah, what do you do? And, and whenever I said, I'm working on a documentary about firearms, People, first question was, are you for them or against them? And I said, well, you know, I'm just sort of exploring. And then the next thing that would happen is people would tell me this emotional story about it. It wasn't facts and figures and statistics. It was an emotional story that they shared with me about this object. And so that's, it just made sense that we elevate this object as being fraught with meaning and your experience tells you if it's a good 
object or a bad object. But there's very few people that I ever ran into that said, oh, I have no opinion, just like I have no opinion about a hammer. So it, it just seemed to fit. Yeah, I think it's impossible to be a living, breathing organism in the United States of America without recognizing that firearms are a totem. And I think the title really captures something that is important in a title. Um, I appreciate that it took you a couple of days wandering around Chico, which is just a gorgeous area, to come up with this because it's really important what it conveys. And I think we could talk for hours and hours about the importance of how we discuss these things and words really do matter. Part of the reason that we were able to bring you on is because of a relationship we have with Furman de Bravander, and he wrote a book, Do Guns Make Us Free, that we discussed on this podcast with him. It was a great podcast. And he talked about that a little bit, not using the term totem, but recognizing that when we talk about rights, right, and the manner in which the Second Amendment has been morphed in America to be something that for those who are strong supporters of gun rights seems to outstrip all of the other rights and freedoms that are provided by our Bill of Rights and our Constitution. He talked about the fact that a gun can speak. And I hearkened back to my own experience, not growing up with guns, but I have shot skeet. I mean, I'm a Virginian. I went to school at Virginia Tech. You can't possibly grow up and go to Blacksburg, Virginia and not have some familiarity and see people who have guns. I was never afraid of guns. It's very different, though, as the leader of a gun violence prevention organization to go to a rally, as I did in Richmond, which was about the passage or the desire to pass gun violence prevention legislation, and stand next to someone who's openly carrying what is in effect an assault weapon right next to you. And it is extraordinarily chilling. It stands for something. And that's obviously, it's the fact of it, that that could do danger to me. It is so chilling. And then it's also the representational role that the gun plays or has attempted to play, is marketed to play in our society, which I think really stands for a risk-free proposition, an empowering kind of object or tool with no downside. I think your title really provides the opportunity to understand why that's the case. Sometimes to understand an issue or a problem, it's really important to step back from it and look at it as someone who is outside the structure and understand what's going on. I think that was really important for me living overseas and being outside of America to see this epidemic for what it is, which is harming us and to some extent holding up a value proposition that is a myth that hurts all of us every single day. And so that's why it's a gun in our culture is a totem. I'm not sure it's all that different, I will say, in other cultures, but the way we wrap it around or those at the NRA have tried to wrap it around things like manliness, love of country, that is unique to our our culture and our society. One of the real strengths of the film is that it really engages all the interviewees' emotional relationship to their guns, or if they don't have guns, just their emotional relationship to firearms in general. So, Sue, I was wondering if you could explain some of what you've seen and observed about the very deep 
relationships that people have with their firearms that they own or just the idea of firearms in general? The approach that I took was I'm going to make a completely neutral film. I'm not going to, you know, push my agenda. And I, and in, in the very beginning, I had many, many, many arguments with people that were very pro gun rights. And, and it was through those nasty conversations that I realized that I was sort of consumed with my own worldview. And so it was through those nasty conversations where people said, I just don't believe that you can create a film that doesn't pick a side. And I was, you know, being stubborn. I said, oh, well, you watch me. And it was through those initial arguments that made me realize that in order for me to understand what I really used to believe was just an irrational, crazy worldview. As I really listened to what people were saying, I realized that they did make sense if I understood the, 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 the data points that they were using. And often we have this, this, every site has the same data points often, and they just connect them very differently. And so you bring up a girl and a gun, and then there's also the Huey P. Newton Gun Club. And these, and even Defense Distributed, the makers of the ghost gun, those folks, they didn't say, oh, yes, come on in, bring your cameras and we'll tell you anything you want. It was me, you know, working with a third party, you know, mutual friends to say, no, really, I do want to hear what you have to say. I really want to understand where you're coming from. Then my job was to figure out how do they see the world that makes what they're saying rational. And as I did that, I, I won't say I walked in their footsteps. I, I didn't or walked in their shoes. I, I didn't, but I, I did. I sort of suspended my judgment for a little while. And, and, and then people just open up. People want to be heard. But when we are talking about what, what people are saying, what, what's shaping people's feelings, you know, I think we do have to talk about what groups like the NRA or what just marketing in general by some of these gun companies or, or just by the media, what that does to sort of people's perceptions of, of what a firearm is. Uh, we could talk about the NRA. I, I, I see them as a business trying to make money and as businesses, you know, the business strategy is how do we make as much money as possible? I think if we're really going to reduce gun violence, I think we don't we need to recognize the NRA as the business that it is and and I and and its business strategy is guns make you a man. Guns make you safe. Guns make you free. That's a marketing strategy. And I think as people that would like to see a reduction in violence in our society, I I think we're wasting our time by trying to engage the NRA because their interest is not in reducing gun violence. All the gun violence perpetuates fear, which causes people to want to buy more guns. And, and so again, as people that want to reduce violence in our society, I think we need to look past the object, quit focusing on the object itself, but think about why people have that object. How do we work on the root causes of the violence, because even if we get rid of the guns, the problems are still there. The biggest concern I have, what I think has been the most dangerous, and I'll be honest, Brady has a case with the FTC about this very thing, is the marketing of weapons intentionally 
to young people. And that's where our loopholes that we have allowed to have happen in the law and the the use of the gun as a totem intersect in a extremely deadly way. And when, when I talk about that, the kind of marketing I'm talking about is the marketing that the NRA was behind, get your man card here, just as an example, with a picture of a semi-automatic weapon. Like if you just had this object then suddenly you'd be a man. I can only think about the marketing research, which the NRA spent a lot of money on, not on gun safety, but on marketing of their weapons that led them to believe that this was something that they could market to people who needed that sense of security, right? It it relates, Sue, to the answer that the woman that you talked to gave, which is she, if she sees a gun, she sees it as a sign of weakness. The NRA is preying on that. That's exactly where the genesis is. The danger is it seems to work. And that's a concern that I have. I think there's a real role for regulation of how these things are marketed, just like with smoking, to be honest, and also of Hollywood in not just glorifying a gun, but also showing the everyday gritty reality of what happens when that gun is used and, and the fallout from that, which is lifelong. I want to kind of even just sort of remind us that, you know, back in the 1850s, back in the 1860s, guns were just a tool. They really and truly were just a tool. And all of a sudden, with the Industrial Revolution, the first application was firearms. And so these gun manufacturers, they could produce a lot of guns. And and who needs a lot of guns? not civilians. And so what the gun manufacturers did was they armed the American military and then they went abroad and they armed France and the Vatican and Russia and they did all of those things. And then in the in the 1880s, Oliver Winchester goes to his board of directors and he says, "We have no more contracts. We essentially we've armed the world, but we still have the capacity to make a lot of firearms. What are we going to do?" And so that was the beginning of the shifting of the advertising. And it was this idea of we have this product and it's not selling anymore. So how do we manufacture uh, uh, the demand? How do we manufacture demand? Well, you only you can only shoot one gun at a time. And so how do we have different kinds of guns that you need? And how do we continue to infuse people with the need to have a gun? Well, the obvious thing is, if you think it's dangerous out there, then you need a gun. But also, as we highlight in the film, there was a there was a, um, a marketing campaign by Winchester, and it was called the Real Boy Campaign. And they had all these advertisements that said, every real boy wants a gun. Every parent of every real boy knows that their boy wants a gun. Give your boy a gun. And and it was this constant, you know, connection between a gun and masculinity. And that was intentional because just like any business, when you run out of customers, how do you find more people to sell it to? And they, and we saw the shift in the 1910s, 1900s, 1910s, from this is what your tool will do to you need a tool to defend yourself. 
and to be a man. And that was the amazing shift. That was the beginning of, I need a gun to be a good American, a manly American. And then, so that was a big part of it. Yeah. This, this, this narrative of, I, I need this, this object, this totem, it represents me and my heritage. And then of course, you know, as you, as you mentioned, uh, JJ, then Hollywood really took it from there. Those, the riflemen and, you know, this idea of what we highlight in the film is the movie Shane, right? And that was a pivotal film for, for the, for firearms and the narrative around firearms is that, yes, a gun is just a tool, but if you're the good guy, it's a good tool. And that's where that narrative from the NRA comes from of only a, uh, you know, the only way to, to defeat a guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. That comes right from the rifleman. That comes right from Shane. It comes from Hollywood. And the reason that I, I, I just love this section of the film is that people on the left tend to say it's that evil marketing. And people on the right say it's that evil Hollywood. And the truth is, it was that just evolution of who we are. And if you think about it for a second, this country sort of evolved from this notion of a clean slate. And we know that that's not really true, but it's this notion of you come to this country and you shed your identity and you pick up the American identity. And so if we think about it, this idea of we're in this this melting pot what that is saying is that we have to create an identity an american identity the problem is marketing and and hollywood crafted that identity that that craft that manufactured the american identity and what that identity says is as an american as a manly american as an independent rugged individual you got to have a gun and so it's so deep in our culture that it, it is going to take time. I think we need short-term measures. We need more domestic violence shelters. We need more mental health clinics in rural areas. We need more economic opportunity in cities. We need all of those things. We also need change of public policy. We also need a change of what it fundamentally means to be an American. And that's a hard one. That's a hard nut to crack. Yeah. When you talk about the solutions to gun violence, you first have to acknowledge that we have a problem with gun violence in this country, and clearly we do. We have 25 times the gun violence of any other major industrialized country. So the role of the gun in that is is the thing. What you're saying, though, is that the causes that lead people to say, well, I want more guns or I want to use guns in this way isn't just about the gun. It's about a lot of other complex things that if we want to address this issue, we really need to. And I guess I have a question. I I always get on the podcast and then commandeer. So let me just get to this because they have a lot better questions. But we launched about three years ago something called the End Family Fire campaign. And that campaign is focused on speaking directly to gun owners. One of the things that we did was lots of research with gun owners all over the country to understand how we should shape this campaign. And one of the key pieces of feedback, no matter where we were in the country, was the way you talk to gun owners makes them feel stupid. You're making a judgment. And I just wonder if you have ideas and thoughts for how organizations like Brady, who are full of gun owners and non-gun owners, that's the legacy of what we do, how we can do better at bridging 
that perception divide that if you are a gun violence prevention organization, it automatically means that you must hate guns, which just isn't the case. We hate gun violence, not guns. Boy, you're asking me what's the answer, and I and I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. One of the moments of pure clarity for me, and it made it into the film, is it came from Dr. Harel Shapira, and he's a sociology professor down at University of Texas in Austin. And I, I was with him. You know, we we had a big meeting here in California, and a lot of the folks that ended up in the film were we were all together. And I basically said, "You are all the experts." Help me, just help me guide the way that I think about this film. I mean, it's very in the beginning. Uh, Dr. Shapira said the biggest problem that gun, uh, I, I want to say gun control advocates, but that, but I think that's putting it too simply. Activists, advocates that want to figure out how to reduce gun violence. He said the, the worst thing that, that continues to happen is that what we talk about is gun control. How do we take guns away? And the, and, and that, what he said to me was, that's the worst thing you can say to a gun owner, because as you're saying, Chris, is what that says to a gun owner is, we don't trust you. We think you're stupid. We don't think you're responsible. And, and I don't, I don't know the statistic. I don't know if I should say most or some or whatever. And so Dr. Shapira made that comment to me and, and that, that idea made it into the film. And because of the marketing and because of the Hollywood glorification of this object, it is people really kind of um, wear it as a totem. It's like, this is who I am. This is who my family is. And when, when gun violence groups seek to reduce, you know, seek to reduce gun violence, the worst thing we could say is, let me have that. Let me take that away from you. And, and the, and my favorite example is, you know, in the film, every single interview, the first question and the very last question for every interview was, what does a gun mean to you? And then in the film, I piece those together and there's just a whole string of people saying what they, what that means. And Rakim Balagoon, one of the co-founders of the Huey P. Newton Gun Club in Dallas, Texas, he said, I asked him, what does a gun mean to you? And he said, freedom. There was no explanation. There was no nothing. And so that has burned into my brain because when I say to somebody, what does a gun mean to you? And he goes on in the film to talk about, I don't know where I'm from, probably West Africa, because he knows that his family, his ancestors were slaves. So when he says to me, a gun represents freedom, he's not going to give it up anytime soon if I say, well, I don't trust you with that object. I don't, what I'm saying is, I don't trust you with that freedom. Give it back to me. And so, uh, Chris, I don't know the answer. I wish I did. The whole goal of the film was to get people to think a little bit differently. And so I don't know the answer, but I, I do think that if we understand what this object represents to people, then we can be more skillful. We can be more respectful in focusing on the issue is the violence as opposed to the issue is this object. I don't want to pretend I know the answer. I think we, I think that's the first sign that we're on the wrong track when we think we know the answer. But I think a piece of the answer is if we don't understand the emotional connection to this object, there's no way we're going to have, you know, a focus on how do we reduce the violence in our society that is amplified by having so many guns circulating. 
Yeah. And I love one of the insights from the film that I think is really profound is when you talk about how guns do have this emotional connection and that people's emotion towards it will be connected to how they're situated in society or their experiences. And so that's why for someone who's, you know, bit experienced domestic violence or for a black person who may feel like they have very little reason to expect um, protection from the state, a gun may mean oppression. Whereas for, you know, a black person who feels like I need to defend myself or for a person who, you know, a woman who like the, the gun club is featured, sees it as empowerment, will experience it as freedom. And so I'm wondering if both of you, Chris and Sue, wouldn't mind talking a little bit about how firearms may track with where people are situated in society. There's a, a, a woman from Austin, Texas, Fatima Mann in the film, and she makes a very, and, and answer to the question, what does a gun mean to you? It means, it means people are afraid the person holding the gun is afraid. So as we focus on the object itself and we use those statistics, things like that, it doesn't, it doesn't resonate with a lot of people. And the reason for that is if we talk about, we do a big part in the film around, you know, what we euphemistically call inner city violence. What we're talking about is the, the real, the, the poverty in our society, in black and brown communities that as a society, we just ignore. And so one of the ways, you know, we could say, put that gun down or let's take guns out of the inner city, which I'm not saying is a bad idea at all, but you're still left with the poverty. You're still left with the lack of dignity. You're still left with all of the problems, all of those issues that result in somebody saying, well, give me a gun. That brings me dignity. That brings me freedom. How do we, how do we start really addressing gun violence is we focus on the poverty in inner cities. And, you know, and, and Chris, you brought up earlier about, you know, I think you're five times, I don't remember the statistic, you're five times or 10 times more likely to kill yourself or your or or somebody in your family if you have a loaded gun in your house well you can tell somebody that but if they believe and they have been in indo- I want indoctrination that's not the right word but if you are raised with this idea of the rugged individual if you are raised on this idea of I take care of myself and my family and a gun allows me to do it if I tell you that you're more likely to kill yourself or your kids than anybody else, it doesn't matter. So, you know, what we what we often don't talk about is most mass shootings that we, when we talk about mass shootings, we're talking about public mass shootings. People that are strangers are the ones that are getting shot. But the truth is, as you all know, Mass shootings happen every single day in this country, and they are not publicized because they're dismissed as domestic incident. This is, you know, a guy that shoots his wife and then his kids run in and he shoots the kids and the neighbors and it's considered private violence. And as a society, we're okay with private violence, right? That's your, you know, that's private world. We're not going there. And so how do we deal with those mass shootings? Let's acknowledge that most of them start with domestic violence. And so let's put more money in domestic violence shelters. Let's have more, you know, let's have public policy that allow women to get out of that situation before they end up dead. You know, it's interesting when, as we're talking about the object of the firearm, 
versus the societal conditions that lead to violence. And one issue that I know we run up against at Brady, and I'm sure, you know, you've seen as well, Sue, and this isn't, I wouldn't ask anyone this question because I don't think it's a fair one, but it's more just the observation that one of the tricky parts, I think, with that is that some of the, the same societal conditions that may lead to gun violence, whether you're talking about, you know, quote unquote, neighborhood violence or domestic violence or even suicide, which are, you know, economic conditions or issues around the way that we're structuring our society and people feeling hopeless because of the way the political system has sorted the constituency that will address those underlying issues or not address those underlying issues often travels with the constituency that's predisposed to be pushing for or resisting any efforts to regulate firearms. And so it's, I think that's like the tricky part when the rubber meets the road is how do we, how, how do we find the political or we have the political will, but how do we end up getting the results that we need? Well, yeah, Kelly, but to that, to that point, we even see all the time the idea, people saying the idea that, you know, that gun violence prevention isn't a bipartisan effort when in, when in fact it is. But I think that goes to the fact that this is such a, a rich and textured conversation. And, it, and it, too often it gets it gets really reduced and the context gets pulled out of it. Yeah. And to Chris's point, even in that in the 1700s or 1600s, that tool would have been experienced differently by Native Americans or enslaved Africans. And so I think to the to tie it all together, just thinking about the object within the cultural space, how do we address the concerns of people and culture is a huge point. And I did want to ask Chris and Sue, you know, we talked a lot about all these different ways that firearms as a totem mean different things to different people and they're situated in our culture. And if if people are rational and want to be safe and want to protect themselves and their families, how do we move this conversation forward? And you can take that as broadly or as narrowly as you want, since that is a, a broad question. But I'm just curious. Well, I think that it is both simple and complex, right? It It's simple in the sense that I'm not thinking we could change the world in a day. But a big part of this is the cultural shift that allows us to have the conversation, that allows someone in the door. And so you... I'd love to hear your perspective on Kelly's question, which is, I think, just an incredible question because you had this in setting up the interviews, right? And if people feel that you're approaching them with good faith and wanting to get to a common ground, I think still, even in the America of 2021, the opportunities are endless. I think the problem we have with our cause is it becomes about something else. It becomes about people digging in instead of getting to the essence of we both want safety. How do we figure that out? And that's where I think there's huge opportunity. The way I think about our work, Kelly, is it starts with community. It starts with these conversations. It's built on making sure that gun dealers, who some of them right now you know very well, are not following the law. It starts, it, the next step is enforcement. The last step is policy. So it, it's it's the reverse of the way a lot of people think about this. Let's start with the conversations and community building first. I think that's the most important thing. And 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 that's the perfect answer for to to throw it to me as as the filmmaker. My my answer to that question, Kelly, is watch American Totem with people. 
because the the number one thing that the first answer I get every time somebody watches the film is they say, "Ooh, there's a lot in there. I want to watch it again. Or how do I give this to my brother or how? And, and so I, I really think and, and again, um, Chris, you're right, is that is once I realized that I was approaching this film from the perspective of I can find the answer and then everybody will say thank you for that answer and we'll just fix it. Once I realized that my perspective was only my perspective, then I could really listen to what's going on. And what I realized is people have guns for a reason. And sometimes it's because they're afraid and sometimes because they got extra money in their board. But often it's because of the stories that we tell ourselves and what society confirms with us. Always. We're, we're always confirming it, mostly through popular culture and, you know, and the media and all of that. And, and so I think absolutely we need to do public policy. Absolutely. We need to have, you know, real tangible action steps. But I, I think a lot of it comes down to having those conversations and really, really, really trying hard to listen, to, to hear what somebody is saying. And one of the people in the film, Bob Trow, she's the, the guy with the long gray hair and he's my neighbor. And I, you know, I talk with him all the time. And what he always says to me, is people listen for the pause. They listen so that when that person pauses, they can infuse their their idea. There's a pause, so I'm going to tell them how it really is. And so what Bob Trash tells me all the time is that we need to stop waiting for the pause and really be present and listen and listen between the lines. And because somewhere between the lines is our common humanity. And I think that is from my perspective that I can, we can only do, you know, 16 hours of work every day. Right. And, and the way that I spend a lot of my waking hours is how do I listen and how do I offer people safe space to share where they are and, and what are their hopes and their disappointments and all of that stuff. And I, you know, I'm a real, I will say I'm not a Pollyanna, but I, but I am an optimist. And I, I think that's how we do this. But that's really hard. And but what I think really comes down to is we need to shift our culture. And it took, oh, you know, the 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 marketing of guns to equate this object with your manhood or your sense of I'm an American that started at the turn of the 20th century. So we've been dealing with this acculturation for 120 years about you need this object to be truly American. And then again, Hollywood jumped in starting in, I think the great train robbery was the first time that we, we noticed that this glorification of an object. And I think that was, I think that was made in 1910. So we've had a long time in creating a culture that puts meaning into this object. And I think, unfortunately, it's going to take a long time to move away from that culture. The, the struggle is well, if we just imposed these things, the culture will follow. But as a people that loves our individual freedom, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to move in that direction. And so I think while we sh- have these conversations, and I think we, we can't deal with something if we don't know it's there. I think 
while we have these conversations and policy gets passed that that says not everybody needs a a semi-automatic firearm in their you know in their glove box while we do those things i think we also you know do the best we can to deal with that inequality and so Kelly, I appreciate you, you know, pointing out that there is a whole group of people that say, why is public money being spent on providing economic opportunity for uh, for these folks that I'm not connected with? Or I don't beat my wife. Why do I care about domestic violence? And I'm hoping I'm hoping I'm an eternal optimist is that we are in a really crazy moment, as we all know. January 6th was one of the craziest, but I'm a real firm believer in that as long as everything is stable, it's hard to, to make any real moves. And so the way I approached this moment and, and, and Kelly to, you know, get back to the question is it's a crazy moment. I'm in it. How do I take this opportunity and, and, and plant those seeds and, and, and have that conversation so that it forever changes and that we don't go back? I, I, I think that's a really important point, Sue. And I, I guess I just add one layer on as the head of Brady, which is very focused on multifaceted solutions, right? And I think that if you take a page from other social change movements, we can learn, right? And historical perspectives around these things are quite important. In the 70s and 80s, you know, high schools around this country had smoking courts. I remember the smoking court at my public high school was banned the year that I started as a freshman. As an asthmatic, that was never a thing for me, right? But there were a lot of people who were up in arms about this, right? Now today, no no public school has a smoking court. The multifaceted public health approach that was taken in the United States to really combat smoking, to deal with Joe Camel and the marketing that had been so successful from big tobacco was multifaceted. There were legal and policy uh, uh, campaigns underpinning it. There was a major marketing campaign. And as a result, we had the use of cigarettes plummet in every age category across this country and all of the concomitant risks and diseases, including lung cancer, drop dramatically as compared to in Europe, for example, where I lived for a while, where it seemed like every 10 or 11 year old literally had a cigarette. It was a major. So I want to hearken back to the fact that we believe at Brady that we do need comprehensive solutions across the board. There needs to be a cultural shift. Sometimes I feel like when I'm talking about that, it's like Dorothy talking about Oz to non-believers. And I'd like to anchor the conversation and the fact that this is not Pollyanna. We have done it before but you're right, Sue, it takes a multifaceted commitment and it's not a short-term thing. We can do it, but it takes an investment and we're looking at sometime over the next five years, actually making a meaningful dent on the 41,000 on average people who die from gun violence and the nearly 100,000 more who are injured for a uniquely American problem. That seems like an investment worth making. Well, and then speaking of investment... (laughs) I really think people should invest uh, their time and and taking the time to go and and watch American Totem. And I'm wondering if you could tell folks about the the viewing parties that you have available uh, for the film. Obviously, how to get the film and and how to watch it, that's going to be in the description of this episode. But I think you and your team have something really unique uh, offered, you know, just for the week, right? 
So there's a wonderful platform. It's called Show and Tell. And on March 15th, we will launch two weeks where anybody can go and watch the film. I strongly encourage people to watch it with others because, and you can stop it because it, it, it really is. There's so many new ideas and actually they're all the same ideas. They're just presented in a way that you might not expect, but all you need to do is remember two websites. One is americantotem.com and the link will be on there, right? You can, it'll be the show and tell link. So americantotem.com. And then you can also go to showandtell.fm. So we'll, we'll offer it for the first week from the 15th until I guess the 22nd, that Sunday. And then we're going to do a Q&A. We'll do a live Q&A that night. And then we'll let the film run for another week. So there's two weeks to watch it on the Show and Tell platform. But go to americantotem.com and that'll give you all the information you need. Well, Chris, Sue, thank you both so much for joining us. Sue, thank you so much for, for this film. And, and if any of them are listening, I, I want to really thank the participants in your film for being so so candid and some, so open in their interviews. It, it's really, I think, a great way for us to start this conversation. Well, Kelly, this week's story hits that unbelievable category, as what I have to share with you is the exact opposite of what I would personally deem relationship goals. Oh, boy. <laughs> that sounds like a Netflix special to be or something. I don't know. I'm very intrigued. It could be. I almost said hashtag relationship goals. And then I was like, I'm going to get roasted for being a millennial. So I pulled back, but I thought about it. Hey, don't never fear. It's I, we got to accept it. Yeah. Millennial pride. Proud. <laughs> well, uh, someone who's probably not proud of themselves right now uh, in Epping, New Hampshire, a husband and wife both suffered gunshot wounds and an unintentional shooting. I mean, I guess on the bright side, it's it, it's unintentional. So, I mean, sadly, that is something to call a relief, but it's also still really bleak. Yeah. And in particular, what's, what's interesting about this one is that it's so it's a Sunday afternoon. The husband's cleaning his nine millimeter handgun. It unintentionally discharges. And that single bullet passed through his thigh and then hit his wife's thigh. Terrifying. Like the thought, like if you're for listeners who may not have been listening as long, like you may think, oh, well, it's just a, a thigh. No, there are some major arteries in your legs. That is serious business. Yeah, thigh, thigh wounds are really serious business. And I think for me, it's also this misconception too that like bullets can't travel through multiple things. We've had to talk about that a few times on this podcast. And so the couple was taken to a local hospital for treatment. And as Kelly, like as you just mentioned, their injuries were serious, but luckily they're okay. I mean, I'm glad they're okay at least physically, who knows about emotionally. But yeah, this is a terrible story. Well, and I think it just goes to show that even if you are aware and, and, you know, super capable and super comfortable with your firearms, you still should, you have to be incredibly cautious because mistakes happen and, and accidents happen and people can be injured. And I think that's exactly kind of what Chris was talking about when she brought up the End Family Fire campaign earlier in this episode, you know? In an awful developing story, a mass shooting has left eight people dead in Atlanta at the time of our recording. Three Atlanta area spas seem to have been targeted by one Georgia man who is now in custody. While the motive is not immediately clear, the Asian American civil rights group Stop AAPI Hate called the shooting an, quote, unspeakable tragedy for the families of the victims first and foremost, but also for the AAPI community, which has been reeling from high levels of racial discrimination, end quote. In a new report linked in the description of this episode, Stop AAPI Hate identified 3,800 anti-Asian hate incidents nationwide, mostly targeting women since last March. 
want to share with the podcast? Listeners can now get in touch with us here at Red, Blue, and Brady via phone or text message. Simply call or text us at 480-744-3452 with your thoughts, questions, concerns, ideas, whatever. Kelly and I are standing by. Thanks for listening. As always, Brady's life-saving work in Congress, the courts, and communities across the country is made possible thanks to you. For more information on Brady or how to get involved in the fight against gun violence, please like and subscribe to the podcast. Get in touch with us at BradyUnited.org or on social at BradyBuzz. Be brave and remember, take action, not type. 